into 19, so I'll get CP to come up with me. Um, and isn't it great that we can open God's Word and just, um, yeah, see it in so many contexts of how, of who God is and, um, yeah, how He presents Himself to us. So, so this morning's a little bit different, um, that you'll see in a second that um, CP will be the big bad Bildad and I'll be the better Joe. But um, anyway, let's, <laughs> we'll see how we go. Uh, let me pray and then we'll get into the Word together. Father God, we thank you for your word and how it admonishes us, encourages us, and teaches us. And uh, Father God, we just pray that as we um, read Job 18 and 19 today, that, yeah, we'll get a sense of who you are and maybe just how do we navigate life when it doesn't seem like you're there. So um, please be with us and teach us what you will. And may uh, Iggy speak your words wisely to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Job 18 and 19. Check. Check. Yeah. Um, I'm reading from the NIV version, New International Version, uh, Job 18. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, When will you end these speeches? Be sensible, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself to pieces in your anger, is the earth to be abandoned for your sake? Or must the rocks be moved from their place? The lamp of a wicked man is snuffed out, the flame of his fire stops burning. The light in his tent become dark. The lamp beside him goes out. The vigor of his step is weakened. His own schemes throw him down. His feet thrust him into, into a net. He wanders into its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare holds him fast. A noose is hidden from him on the ground. A trap lies in his path. Terrors startle him on every side and dog his every step. Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for him when he falls. He eats away parts of his skin. Death's firstborn divorce his limbs. He's torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors. Fire resides in his tent. Burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. His roots dry up below and his branches wither above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name in the land. He is driven from light into the realm of darkness and is banished from the world. He has no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivors where once he lived. People of the West are appalled at his fate. Those of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who does not know God. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with your words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry, violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, There is no justice. 
He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my path in darkness. He has stripped me of my honour and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look on me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer. Though I beg him with my own mouth, my breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how will we hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you, brothers. And please keep your Bibles open at Job 19, and that will be our scriptures we'll be digging into a bit deeper today. Let me start by telling you a story about someone. Uh, Her name is Vanitha Reisner. Um, She uh, was diagnosed with polio as an infant. Uh, She lived in hospital for most of her young life through primary school, sometimes for a year at a time. Uh, She had 21 surgeries by the age of 13. Doctors thought she could never use her arms and legs ever again. But uh, miraculously, she learned to walk. Uh, she went to university, lived a relatively normal life for a while, but things, things started getting worse. Uh, she contracted something called post-polio syndrome. She got diagnosed with this. Um, her arms and legs started deteriorating, getting weaker and weaker. And now every day is a struggle. Uh, presently, she uses a wheelchair uh, because she is so weak. When she was pregnant with her son, uh, an ultrasound found out Uh, that he had a heart problem. Uh, He had surgery as soon as he was born, and the results were excellent, so uh, the family was very happy with that. Um, One day, they went in to check their son, and there was a substitute doctor on. He said, "Um, your son is going really well. I think we can start taking him off the medications. Um, So, you know, they were happy with that. Obviously, there was improvement. They took him off the medications, and her son died three days later. She buried an infant son at two months old. Then in 2009, her husband came home and told her, I'm leaving you for another woman. They had two two teenage girls to take care of, and all of a sudden, Vanitha was left to be a single parent 
dealing with grief and another loss. I don't know how you feel when you hear this. As I read this to you, I'm, I'm getting quite emotional, even though I've heard this story over and over again. Surely this woman has suffered enough, hasn't she? One of those things would have been enough. One, yet over and over and over again, suffering hits. When you hear things like this, you just think, right, this is unfair. This is unfair. Why do these things happen? Why do they happen especially to good people, people who don't deserve it? And why is there so much injustice in this world? Friends, these are the big questions that Job raises for us. These are the things that we've been looking at over the past weeks. These are the things that we'll continue to wrestle with and struggle with and seek answers for. We'll cry out to God for answers. Job will cry out to God for answers. And um, as we dig into his word, I hope he'll help us to understand. And maybe we won't get the answers that we would like, but it'll help us to understand how we're to feel, how we're to process these things, how we're to understand our God and his purposes. So come with me today. Have your scriptures open. Job 19. We're we're at our first point. Everyone is against me. When you're suffering, quite often this is what you feel like, isn't it? That the world is against you. Have you ever felt like that before? I've counseled many people and this um, this is the feel that comes from them, that everything is against me. The world is against me. And this was the experience of Job. Firstly, as we look at the passage, he feels his friends are against him. In chapter 2, we saw um, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come to him in a time of suffering. It's a very good start, isn't it? But as we see uh, the speeches continue, as they uh, say things to him, and Job replies back and forth between Job and his friends in chapters 3 to 27, we see that their words haven't been particularly helpful. And this comes because they hold to a very simplistic, fixed view of how God works. This is um, this is a cycle of speeches throughout the chapters. It's just a bit of a structure for you. But um, the reason that they haven't been very helpful is because they hold to this view, a very fixed, simplistic view of how God works. Their argument is this, that God is just. The implication being that God runs the world according to justice, which means the only conclusion is this, that Job must have sinned. Job must have sinned. That's what they believe. And no matter how many times Job protests his innocence, they won't back down. They keep saying, Job, you are guilty. You've got some secret sin that you're hiding. That's the only possible explanation. That is why you are suffering. That's why, because God is punishing you. They even start making up lists of potential sins that Job could have done. You know, just theorizing lists of sins that they, he could have done. And they even say lines like this, do you know why your children died? It's because they were sinners. Which is why it's no surprise as Job replies to Bildad, he expresses his heart. Have a look at Job 19 verse 2. Job 19 verse 2, have a look with me in your Bibles. How long will you torment me and crush me with your words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. And Job is essentially saying to his friends, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Look at the language he uses. You torment me. You crush me with your words. You shamelessly attack me. This is a man who is having more pain inflicted on him by his friend's words as he is in the midst of pain. Friends, remember 
the power of your words. They can either be used to build up or completely destroy another. Job is deeply hurt by those who are closest to him, and we all know the ones closest to us, their words often cut the most. He goes on to lament um, the fact that his close friends, even his family, are against him. But not only that, every other person in his life. Jump forward with me to verse 13 of chapter 19. If you don't have your Bible, just listen along. Verse 13. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My, family, my relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me as a foreigner. They look on me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer. Though I beg him with my own mouth, my breath is offensive to my wife. I'm loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. His own wife can't stand to be near him. His intimate friends hate him. Even the little kids, they tease him. It's like you're walking back from school, you're walking back home and a bunch of school kids start throwing their lunch at you and teasing you. Look, look how pathetic this guy is. This is the lowest of lows. Everyone is against Job. At least this is how he feels. But ultimately, what Job cares most about and what Job feels most acutely is this. God is against me. God is against me. Have a look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me in a camp around my tent. Imagine going camping in the morning, you open the flap of your tent and this is what you see. You just peek out and there facing you is a battalion of soldiers with guns pointed towards you, a wall of tanks with turrets fixed on you and overhead is an entire air force flying overhead. And they have the sole focus of attacking you, destroying you, bringing you down. Little old you in your flimsy tent. This is how Job feels. God is against me. And this is completely unfair. How unfair is this? Little old me, this is not right. This is unjust. How can God attack me in such a manner? Job feels like everyone is against him. And here's the worst part. God is doing nothing about it. My point two. God won't answer me. Here's another thing that God is... Uh, that Job is feeling. Have a look at verse 4 with me. If it is true that I've gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. Job, in verse 4, he asserts his innocence Again, to his accusing friends, to Bildad especially. If, he says, if, if I have gone astray, that's between me and God. That's my concern alone. Leave me alone. 
And Job's conscience is clear. He knows he doesn't deserve this suffering. And we, as the readers, we know this to be true as well. Uh, you must be sympathetic to his friends in this regard. They don't have the full picture. They're, they're only going with what they see in front of them. They're speaking of only what they know. But we've seen in chapter 1 already. Remember this, Job 1, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is what? Blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, I don't think this is saying that Job was perfect, that Job was completely sinless because he is human and sin corrupts every single one of us. But in God's eyes, at least, Job was a true worshipper of him. He was blameless. There was nothing that could be said against him. Someone who had his heart set on living for him. God was pleased with Job. At the very least, we can support Job when he tells his friends, I don't deserve this suffering. And this is the root of the anguish that Job is feeling. You think about it. He knows that he's innocent, but no one else does. He knows that he's innocent, but he's being accused like a guilty person. He's being treated like a guilty person. I wonder, have you ever been unfairly accused before? You know, what did you guys come up with in your responses then? Let me tell you a little story. Um, when I was in school, as, this only came back to me as I was going through the sermon. When I was in school, when I was about 10 years old, I got unfairly accused by the school. And guess what they accused me of? They accused me of graffitiing the school. Me, graffitiing the school. A little old, a little skinny Asian kid, like the most harmless kid in the world, graffitiing school. And this was their rationale because uh, my parents are here now, my, uh, because we live behind the school. So I had easy access to the school. And then uh, me and my friend, uh, they accused both of us. Once, one time my friend had drawn something in chalk on the ground, to, like a hopscotch square or something. And they said, I oh, see, there's, a, there's the evidence. It matches. The, the handwriting's the same. I was so upset. Yeah, I was, I was, it, was, it was a horrifying experience. You know? It seems like nothing now, as I tell you guys. But for a small, a young child being unfairly accused, I was horrified. You know, I, I was... To have the principals accuse me, uh, to have my parents question me, eventually it all got cleared, but it was a terrible experience. This is a small thing. Job here not only gets accused of being guilty, but he also suffers the consequences of being guilty too. It would be as if I got expelled from the school for that act that I never did. That would be an incredible injustice, but this is what Job is going through on a much larger scale. And what he desires, what Job desires is vindication. Vindication, what's that mean? Well, here's one definition. Um, To show someone to be free from guilt or blame. That's what he wants. A public declaration to clear his name. He wants his name cleared. He wants to be declared not guilty. (coughs) Excuse me. He wants to be treated like the innocent person that he is. But he's getting no reply. No one's showing up for him. Verse 6, Then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. There is no reply. There is no justice. Instead, we see here 
as Job speaks about God, that God is portrayed like a cruel beast, tearing apart Job. Job is not seen as innocent. He's counted as guilty, and he's suffering as a guilty person, as an enemy of God. We see here that Job is once again unfiltered in his lament to God. He complains from his heart, God, you are being unfair. You know I'm innocent. Why won't you vindicate me? Why are you treating me like this? This is unfair. You are being cruel, harsh. I don't deserve this. And at this point, you wouldn't be surprised if Job just tapped out, right? You wouldn't be surprised if he just gave up on God and said, that's enough. You know, why should I even bother anymore? Because in a sense, God is being very unfair to him. But Job, if you notice in the reading before, he finishes his cry very differently. This is how he finishes. God is for me. This is what he cries out. God is for me. Almost out of nowhere comes verse 25. Have a look at verse 25 with me. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Is this the same Job? A few verses before, he was complaining about how God has caused all of his loved ones to hate him, how he's brought all this suffering upon him, how he's been treated unfairly, and that he, he, he's been treated like an enemy. God's wronged him. Yet Job can say this, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. He has confidence that ultimately God has not abandoned him. That even though he feels like God is treating him like an enemy, he knows that isn't the truth. That somehow, somewhere, God still cares. That God is still for him. He knows that even after his body is destroyed, he will see God. He will see God. There's hope. He'll meet God face to face. That one day he'll be vindicated. God will show up and speak for him. That he'll be cleared. His name will be cleared. He'll be declared one of God's friends, not one of God's enemies, because God himself will redeem him, will put things right. That's what redeemers do. And he longs for this day. He longs for this day. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me, yearns. What we see in Job is an incredible model of where Suffering should take us. Job knows better than anyone. He knows better than anyone the pain of unjust suffering, yet he just cannot give up on God. He can't give up on him. It's a paradox, really, in one sense. He, even as he passionately complains to God about God's cruelty to him, he passionately still longs for God to be close to him. Friends, Job may not feel like God is on his side, but he knows, it doesn't change what he knows, that God is on his side. So instead of moving further away from God, what does Job do? He moves closer to him. Friends, this is what we call real faith. Real faith. We're at point four, the marks of a believer. 
Do you know what the test of a believer actually is, the true test of a believer is? It's suffering, when suffering comes. Christian pastor and scholar Christopher Ashe speaks of two marks of a true believer, which I think are really helpful. And we see these exemplified in Job, and they should be a source of reflection for us too, as we undergo suffering and as we prepare to undergo suffering. The first is this. The first mark is this, a unique pain. Because think about this. There's a certain sharpness to the pain of a Christian that no one else has. Because we have to wrestle with the problem of pain, that, that we believe in a God who is sovereign, completely in control, and somehow ter- terrible things still happen in this world. And terrible suffering happens to me. Can this God really be a loving God when he won't help me get out of the depression that seems like it'll never end? Can this God really be good when the doctors just told me, I'm sorry, it's cancer, and we can't do anything about it? Can this God really be just when my infant son has just died? And I highlight this because we aren't supposed to just pretend everything is okay as Christians, especially when injustice comes. Back in 2015, when 21 Egyptian Christians were executed by Islamic State, and it was shown, and there was a video all over the internet. I don't know if you remember that time. That image is burned in my head. We aren't, when we encounter that sort of injustice, we aren't just to pace on a smile and say, that's okay, God. God is good. No worries. The mark of a true believer is someone that should take God's goodness seriously, which means we should call on God to act when we encounter injustice. We should call it what it is. And this is a unique pain, the pain that causes us to lament like Job for us as Christians, as we believe in a good, sovereign God, yet we encounter suffering and injustice in this world. We ask God, you know, you are in control, so why is the world so messed up? That's the first mark of a true believer. And how we process this unique pain, though, is what leads to the second mark of a believer. It's this, a passionate longing. We see in Job a paradox where he complains strongly to God about God, yet longs for God with all of his heart. These two seemingly opposite things together. He just can't bring himself to hate God. In fact, he longs for him even more in the pain of his suffering. Did you notice that? Even when he can't understand what God is doing, even when he feels God is being unjust, even when God doesn't answer him, he doesn't give up on God. He doesn't give up on God. Again and again, because he loves God, he says, I want to meet God. I want to be right with God. I want to be reconciled to God. I want to be justified, vindicated, seen to be right with God. Over and over again. Um, Two more parts of Job where this sort of theme comes up. Job 13, 15, he says this, Though he slay me, Yet I will hope in him. There's that paradox again. Job 14, verse 13 says this, If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. All he wants is God to remember him, not forget him, even as he suffers. His greatest longing, Job's greatest longing is to be in the presence of God. He desperately longs to meet face-to-face, this mysterious, terrifying God, and he doesn't understand, that he doesn't really understand, yet he knows he needs 
He needs him. He longs passionately for God in a time that it would make most sense to just abandon God and hate him. This doesn't make sense, really. My friends, this is true worship. A worship that says this, that even if I have nothing left, God is enough. God is enough. A worship that can only be revealed in the fires of suffering. Friends, suffering comes with purpose. It isn't because God has lost control. He has a good plan, even in the worst times, even if it doesn't feel like it. And every suffering, it comes to refine us. There's a purpose in the pain. Because suffering reveals where our true love is, where our true hope is. Is it, is it in the things of this world or is it in our eternal God? Think of what you love most. What do you love most? If that was taken away, what would that do to your faith? For me, it's my wife and my kids. I can't imagine what would happen if they were gone. It's a challenging thought, isn't it? What would it do to my faith? I hope I would stay strong. Let's challenge you to think about that. Who do I love more? What do I love more? Friends, as we look to Job, we see an amazing example of true worship, of true faith, forged in the fires of suffering, in the depths of despair. Where will your suffering take you? We're at our final point, preparing to suffer. Friends, true believers are marked by both a unique pain and a passionate longing. A unique pain and a passionate longing. Both of these things. So friends, when we face hardship, I'd encourage you, as we heard a few sermons ago, lament. God wants you to lament. God wants you to pour out your heart to him. But please don't stay there. He doesn't want suffering to destroy you. The model of lament that Job shows us, and also the psalmist as we read through the psalms of lament, is a lament that is honest and raw and real to God, that doesn't hold back, but a lament that leads somewhere. It's a cry of pain and anguish that grapples with the reality of a broken world, but it doesn't stay there. It doesn't crush Job. It's a lament that still ends with hope. Did you notice that? With hope. Hope of vindication that he'll be declared right in God's eyes one day. Hope of reconciliation, that he can come into God's presence again. Let me revisit these verses. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he'll stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And like many Old Testament writers, Job is saying more than he realizes, isn't he? Because this, my friends, is a hope that we too share. The hope of vindication, the hope of reconciliation, the hope of being with God again. A hope that we can have supreme confidence in. The hope that sustains us even in the worst suffering, in the worst injustice. And we have confidence in this hope because it's not founded on us. It's founded in the 
our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Friends, we might not get all the answers we want to our suffering, but God has given us an answer that is far bigger. His Son, Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, an innocent sufferer stepped into this world. If we want to talk about injustice, this is the biggest injustice in all of history. Jesus Christ came, and he came as the one perfect human, the only one who did everything that he was supposed to do. He never disobeyed God. He never sinned. He was completely righteous. He was completely just, yet he died on the cross. He was executed publicly in shame for us. And imagine the headlines, if you saw this plastered on your social media, innocent man executed publicly. What an outrage. What an injustice. But this is what happened to Jesus Christ for us. But this alone is not where our hope lies. Our hope lies not in the fact that, only in the fact that Jesus Christ died, but in the fact that Jesus Christ has risen again. Because have a think about this. If Jesus Christ didn't rise again, what could that mean? Maybe we would have looked at the grave of Jesus and said, well, maybe he was just another man. Maybe we would, we, 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 maybe we would have been thinking, well, maybe he was a sinner like the rest of us. He actually deserved that death. Just another rotten sinner like the rest of humanity. We, maybe we would have thought, well, he was supposed to die for sins. I don't think it worked. I'm not even sure if it worked, actually. But friends, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it was of key importance. This is why the resurrection is so important to our faith, because it was his vindication. It was his vindication. It was where God declared about his son, it is finished. Sin has been paid for. Jesus is proven right here. Jesus, all guilt is cleared away. The resurrection is Jesus' public vindication. His declar- the declaration from the Redeemer God that sin is done for and his son is cleared of blame. And because Jesus has been publicly vindicated, we too can, be sh- can share in his vindication as well. Friends, our hope lies in the hope of the resurrection, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A hope that has been founded in history. And that's why it is rock solid. That is why it is something that we can rely on, that we don't have to question, that we don't have to worry about. The best thing about this is that it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on your performance, friends. It depends on what Jesus Christ has done. That he has died, that he has risen again, and he's ascended into heaven. There's even more. And you know what he's doing right now in heaven? He's speaking on your behalf. He's advocating for you to the Father. In chapter 9, Job um, goes through another cycle of crying out for vindication. But he's terrified of God. He's terrified. How can I come near to him and speak my case? And this is what Job says in chapter 9. It's coming up on the screen. You can have a look on the screen. Verse 33. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. But now as it stands with me, I cannot. Friends, for us, this isn't wishful thinking, is it? 
We don't have to say if only because God has given us a mediator. He's given us his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ advocates for you right now with the Father because he's risen and he's ascended again. And you know what? Every sin of yours, Jesus is saying, I've, I've paid for that. Everything that you look at that you know, you know you're not supposed to, but you keep doing it, Jesus is saying, I've paid for that. Every, every time you fly off your handle at the kids and you're just uh, feeling guilty and shameful, Jesus is saying to the Father, I've paid for that. Every, every time you, 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 you doubt and you, you're, you lose faith for a little while and you're like, Jesus is saying, I've, I've paid for that. Jesus is saying to the Father, this is one of mine. They are not guilty. You are vindicated. So it means we too can cry this with Job. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Friends, do you share the hope of Job? Do you share the hope of Job? If you're here today and you're not yet a believer in Christ, so good that you're here to hear God's word with us today. Friends, if, you, if that's you, I would invite you in to share in the hope that Job has, the hope that we share as Christians. This is a hope that Jesus brings for you too, a hope that will sustain you even in the worst sufferings. Bring your pain to him. He will take it from you. If you are a follower of Jesus, keep trusting. Keep trusting. Let me say to you, you don't have to pretend. You don't have to pretend that you're okay. You don't have to pretend. Job didn't pretend. You don't have to pretend you're not hurting. Lament and cry to God. But don't forget who your Redeemer God is. Don't forget what he has done for you and what he will do for you. You are justified right now in Christ, which means on that final day, you will be vindicated. On that final day, you will see God face to face and he will declare you not guilty. In fact, he'll declare you one of his children. (laughs) This is the hope that sustains us in suffering. This is the only thing that can sustain us in suffering. This hope transforms everything. Friends, Christians can suffer in a way that nobody else can because we have hope. Never let go of that. Can you remember the story of Vanitha that I told you at the start of this message? Um, Severe disability, infant son dead, husband walking out the door. It's enough to crush anyone, but it didn't crush her. I didn't mention to you that Vanitha is a sister in Christ, a believer. Uh, She actually writes and speaks now on suffering. Someone well equipped to do that. And this is what she said. In the midst of her grief after her husband had just left her, leaving her angry and grieving, she said this, I felt like I had nothing left. All the things I had turned to for comfort were gone. I had nothing to cling to but God. But I realized then that God was enough. And I fell in love with God in a way that I can't describe. I learned how to trust God. Beneath our suffered well, and this is a reminder of the amazing hope that the gospel brings, the hope that enables us to suffer well too.
Friends, take heart. Turn to God. Trust in him for your vindication on that final day and give praise and thanks for that hope that never fails. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do lament with those who are suffering injustice and pain. And we don't have answers all the time. Often we don't. My friends, we turn to you and trust in you, knowing that there is more, that there is an eternal hope, a hope secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a hope secured by his mediation right now, speaking on our behalf, a hope that never fails, even when we can't make sense of the things around us right now. Thank you that Jesus has come to provide us a solution in this world of injustice and pain and suffering. And we pray that we will always cling to this. Give us the strength of that by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to continue to remember the cross as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you didn't receive some of the elements when you walked in, please raise your hands. This is a meal for believers in Christ. If you're not yet a believer, 